Minister. I think that we're really very fortunate to have um, a number of, of CISOs here on the panel. So we've got representation here from Liberty, Old Mutual, and Discovery. In between them, sure, they've got, I suppose, heading towards at least 50 years of experience. So that's quite a lot. Zaid on my left has 20 years of IT experience across a wide range of disciplines, including networking, infrastructure, development, architecture, security, and a working knowledge of risk management with audit exposure. He's driven multiple enterprise-wide security programs, projects, and implementations of, of security capabilities. I guess part of that one, he says he's done a number of them. I understand from my research that the average life of a CISO in a company is about two years. I'm not sure whether it's to do with the stress of, stress of the job or um, something to do with incident management, but maybe um, they'll share something of that a little bit later. Zayda is accountable for all information and cybersecurity at group level at um, Discovery and um, is responsible for setting the security strategy and vision for developing and implementing a group-wide security program. Carissa from Old Mutual um, started her information security and risk management career at Telcom, having studied IT specializing in software engineering in Malaysia. She went on to work in various business sectors, including banking, transportation, tele and telecoms. And her exposure varies from setting up information security practices and teams from the ground up for a um, highly cyber-targeted organization to running large security projects for an international bank. She's been at Old Mutual since January 2016 and currently heading up IT information security and resilience risk in our CISO's office. And then on my right, um, Julian is the CISO at Liberty Holdings and he's very keen about disruption and innovating applying it to himself in his career, and he's um, over his career to date been making contributions in financial services, government, army, and special forces, insurance, and private healthcare sectors. Um, the last 15 years he's um, spent in the information security, cyber, data governance, and privacy area. So I think they'd be really lucky to have a range of highly experienced practitioners here. I think the last couple of seminars we've had, we've had um, consultants to industry coming to talk to us, and now we plan to get insight into it from, from people who live and breathe um, information security. So thanks very much for being here. Julian's busy trying to work on a sound clip for us, and in the meantime, I think I'll ask the, the traditional question that everybody asks, and maybe, Carissa, can I put you first on? What keeps you awake at night? Oh. <laughs> so, Judy, it's usually my kids, but uh, I'm assuming that's not the answer you're looking for. Um, so, I think um, in the information security world, the thing that probably keeps me up um, the most at night is, um, you know, I was, I was in a conference a few years ago, and the analogy was used that we try to build walls, but attackers put up ladders very quickly. The time it takes to build a wall versus putting up a ladder um, is very, very different. Um, so I think it's almost, you know, how do, I, how do I know what's the next move? What's the next big thing? 
um, and how do I how am I able to foresee that before anyone starts looking at it because I want to know about it before the bad guys do because putting up a ladder versus building a wall is a very different story and if we start when the ladders start going up we have no hope of of, of keeping our company safe um, so it's almost what is that next big thing um, and there's a lot on the horizon there's a lot of different things uh, but that's probably the single most thought that keeps me up at night other than my son <laughs> Do you want to add to? Look, so from, I mean, there, there is a general um, sort of concern that, that we all have as security practitioners, but I think more so in today's time and the competitive market that we have um, and the continuous innovation and disruption in the market is also keeping up with our business. I think our business is moving at such a rapid pace trying to adopt uh, every single new thing out there, trying to sort of ensure the security controls or uh, our security posture is maintained is is actually becoming quite difficult. So apart from just worrying about attackers, now we need to worry about our own internal company and, and um, business people actually trying to take that next step in uh, adopting and embrace technology. But with all of that, um, there's obviously the threat. So yeah, that's the, the other angle on it as well that keeps me up at night. I want to add to that, uh, say, how are you doing, guys? It, it seems like a, a different crowd that we're normally not used to. What we normally do is a song and dance <laughs> to get the people excited about what we want to talk about. So I was lucky. I got in a few minutes earlier, and I listened to the, the, the last talk, and I was totally blown away. So thank you very much to the young uh, actuary uh, before the break. Um, I'm going to start with you guys because you guys keep me up awake. Uh, <laughs> not, not just from a um, user point of view, but uh, I often uh, engage our guide and say, so what's the equation? How do I get to a silver bullet? What is, what is my variables? Because in our world, in any day, it's not normal one, it's not consistent. And things like Poppy, Pokaratata, uh, Fika, AML, and just the normal run of things. We've got to be paranoid. That's part of the job description about not just waiting for the next big thing, but at the same time, how do you like tag with the business dudes, uh, make sure that they're getting what they're wanting without breaking every book in the every rule in the book, at the same time not impacting productivity. So we, we have a common saying amongst us that the tools and the fools, they will remain the fools. You can have the most um, scientific calculation, but it's about being pragmatic. It's about being risk-based. So we talk about being perfect at a few things, and you can average the risk. And we'll talk about that as we get prompted or as we can influence you guys in terms of what do you need to think about around this topic. Okay, I'm going to open and see if there are any questions from the floor, otherwise I'll carry on with the cheat list that I've been, been given. So if you can get some, some mics around on the floor, that would be good. Thank you. Um, Zaid, this is uh, maybe specifically to you because I think this is what you just said keeps you up at night. Uh, I just want to know, how do you trade off between information security and employee productivity? So specifically talking about something like 
um, some Office 365 cloud-based features that are very useful for productivity but may pose um, a data leak threat. So I think it's exactly like Julian mentioned. Uh, it's taking that risk-based approach. And I think that's where our partnership with the risk community is absolutely imperative to understand what the business risk appetite is and that actually allows us to adopt Office 365. I think uh, most corporates today are already on Office 365 and the, the hardened security practitioner will say, no, let's stay, still stay away from cloud. But I mean, as businesses, we can't keep our head in the sand anymore. So with that, we, we look at the risk and, and, and manage it from that way. So it is definitely not shying away from it anymore. Um, I think most banks, most corporates, I know Discovery, we're already on Office 365 as well. I think, so if I can add to that, so I think um, I'm very, you know, the, the risk world of the past is very much strict rules and guidance and governance and controls and etc. and we still need that. But the way that we apply it, I think, is different moving forward. Um, and I used a good example, and Judy and Richard were there when I used it the other day. So in, 28, in 2008, um, our parents told us, don't get into strangers' cars and don't talk to strangers on the internet. And that was our risk management. And if you fast forward 10 years, Uber would not exist if we had used that same risk management. Because <laughs> we literally summon strangers on the internet to get into their cars. That's the whole business model of Uber. So it's about, you know, applying controls where they make sense to apply the control, but it's not a blanket approach anymore. We can't afford a blanket approach anymore. It's about being highly customized, being understanding your business, being so in tune with your business and so embedded in your business that you intrinsically understand what they are trying to achieve and enable them to achieve it in the most secure manner. Um, you're always going to have a piece of residual risk. There's always going to be trade-offs. Um, but the path that you create is the most secure one for them to be able to achieve what they want to achieve. And it's exactly that. Uh, it's, security has now moved from being the policeman to actually being business enablers. Mm. And that's how most CISOs are actually positioning security within their companies, is uh, enabling the technology and actually enabling the business to move at that rapid pace that they need to. I would like to tell in some of the things my colleagues are saying. Um, in my mind, I have more confidence in going into the cloud, um, placing reliance on some of the security and privacy um, attributes that they've built into the Microsoft product and some, and some other houses. Um, it doesn't take away the accountability from the business. So going into the cloud, irrespective of what platform you want to use, needs to have, firstly, your business um, support and your processes. Because you can't take something that's manual and try to automate it, right? You can't take something that's broken and try to fix it or uh, get the robot to do it for you. So be mindful that accountability will never be deferred into the cloud. You can place the reliance, you still need to be diligent do the, do the uh, reasonableness. Uh, as CISO, you need to walk with business uh, into the cloud. Hi, thanks for the talk. Um, obviously, we've had a fair amount of attacks on 
uh, and not to mention the latest one, I wouldn't mention the company, but... Um, I think we can. <laughs> so, so, sorry, I have to stop. We took bets as to how long this question was. <laughs> I won. <laughs> but uh, I guess as the frequency of these events kind of um, evolve, what are we learning from each other in the industry to actually um, become smarter and to almost become more proactive in our, in our approach? So are we talking to each other to, to learn lessons, etc.? I'm going to go, guys, if you don't mind. Yeah. I'm closer to this one. <laughs> so good. And I like the question because it has a very people um, focus, right? So just before we got on, we were saying that there's platforms that, that's been created out of uh, either the financial services or the insurance sector. So be it Sabric or CISA, we're saying, you can only share to a point in that community. I feel that we, we are now creating our own uh, tribes amongst us. So the CISO Alliance, as an example, exists today. And it's a very trusted advisory uh, platform. Um, more than that, we have each other on either email or WhatsApp, or we're sending a pigeon if we don't get all of you. Um, and it's sharing to a point where we don't compromise the organization that we represent and ourselves. I'm not saying that we're perfect at it yet, because in my mind, I want to stand up and tell the Liberty story authentically until I get that green light and until the um, investigation is concluded. I am um, uneasy to share in a public forum. What we are sharing back is things that are not unknown to you, or that if you had this, the breach would have not still happened. So we are sharing, and we want to share more. The, um, if I look at government, if I look at the private sector, these are the uh, platforms we need to start building more deliberately in terms of um, an incident happens, can we share uh, to the community to at least give them a certain level of heads up to prevent that happening from them. I think that's where we can do much more. At the moment, I think it's informal, it's courtesy amongst us, it's, it's professionalism. Um, we, are, we, are, we as individuals, as CISOs, are driving that collaboration more and more amongst us. And I think just additional to that, I mean, I think the advantage we have in South Africa is the security community is so small. Um, literally, you see the same faces at the same conferences, at the same events, we all use the same providers, we all use the same technologies. Um, so, like Julian mentioned, I mean, we've got these, uh, almost, we actually call it a shadow CSER. Uh We've got the Jedi Councils, we've got a CISO roundtable that occurs uh, quarterly. Uh, so we do share. I mean, when we pick up things in terms of uh, threat intel, we're saying, guys, we're picking this up in our environment by using it. Um, and all, again, I think um, security is no more a competitive advantage uh, in terms of our business uh, businesses. It's literally we, we need to stand together as a community and a country to actually protect uh, our corporates together. And I think, you know, if I look back almost like five to ten years ago, you could probably 
you know, breaches weren't as publicized as they are today. Um, and they weren't as frequent as they are today. Um, and it's almost that concept of it's not, you know, it's not if you're going to be breached, it's when. And I think we all realize that. Um, so there's nobody standing up when, you know, there's a breach and going, ha, 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 you did something wrong. Um, there's people rallying going, how can we help? Um, which I think the change in, in just the way, the volume of, the, of breaches that we're faced with and how publicly damaging they can be, um, I don't think anyone is complacent about it or, or, you know, saying you did something wrong or whatever it is. It's more, you know, it could, have, it could be me tomorrow. So how do, I, how do I assist now so tomorrow I have assistance as well? What really, really um, took me back was I had hits on LinkedIn. Um, I got people calling me, got the competitor asking me, do you need help? Um, they didn't ask, you know, what happened? Uh, they, what, are you okay? How can we help? In my mind, the attack was not on Liberty, but it was an attack on South Africa. So the attackers share information. They share vulnerabilities, they share loopholes. What we're trying to do is share the threat intelligence, like Zaid is saying, amongst us. So if we see something of the norm, um, whether it's phishing, whether it is some kind of cyber attack, very specifically, we're sharing among the communities because the threat feeds are only yet um, a small set of feeds coming in globally from our um, partners, from uh, the likes of Sabric, the CISA guys. So, to your point, the collaboration needs to be elevated and it needs to continue, irrespective of what platform you're using. That's our, part of our defense mechanism today. It's part of our strategy. Can I maybe ask a follow-up question in ter terms of, I mean, I think that everybody's on a journey to talk tighten things up and, and kind of have better security generally. <coughs> when you have these kind of setbacks, how do you build confidence in the program that, that you're trying to roll out? I mean, presumably everybody's asking for money to make this happen. Mm. Um, does it help that discussion? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Judy, I, I, I like the question. So. Fortunately for us, we were in the middle of doing what we committed to the board, our shareholders, and the, and the industry uh, in essence. What that helped me, and I'm hoping for the rest of South Africa, was firstly, if you didn't get an opportunity to address the board, you were there the next day and you got an invite to the coffee session as well, right? The second one was, yeah, I'm not kidding. We don't normally get coffee at the board session. Now you get coffee and you get to chat about cyber and security. Um, it's about the budgets, right? So suddenly I'm hearing my colleagues and my, uh, even the competition saying, hey, Liberty, thank you. This is what you've done for me because now they have been placed on a um, situation where they need to show very deliberate uh, refresh or recalibrating of their strategy because the board is saying to them, how much do you need for this problem to go away? We, 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 we know you never go to board and you sell them there's no silver bullet and you never sell them that we're done. We can go on a break and we're resilient. 
because what happens is when you become complacent is when that breach happens. So yes, I'm saying, I've written an article and I want you guys to go read it. It's on LinkedIn about how do you choose a CISO? And you can see they look differently, they dress differently, they comb their hair differently. So, <laughs> so, so yes, I'm thinking um, the breach, one, elevated, accelerated the program, not just from a cybersecurity, information security, enterprise risks management, so in its entirety. I got everyone in the building and the branches now knowing about what this topic is, what it represents, what does it mean for them, so the rhythm factor comes into play. Um, and I must say, um, when I go outside, I'm hearing uh, that people are now either having a plan or they're refreshing their plan because budget is no more an issue. Thanks, Thank you. Just two questions or two comments. First, when <laughs> you're up against massive players, you've got North Korea, the states that are out there trying to rip off millions of dollars. So your opposition isn't small, and you've got this. Uh, so that you're really onto a losing streak that you can try and keep the wall higher than the ladder. That's the first observation. Second one is this recent breach of British Air, the credit card, 300,000. I was quite surprised that uh, British Air keeps the entire information, including the CVV number, which was in access. Surely if one does a security structure, you keep some of the information in a separate file or make sure that somebody hacks it, doesn't get the whole of it. Those 300,000 people, their cards could be used, the details could be used within seconds. So it's not possible to have the information in different places so that a hack can't, can't pick up the whole lot at once. Yeah, no, look, so, so definitely, uh, in terms of protecting data, there's obviously multiple methods to protect that data. I mean, splitting it, is, is, uh, as you mentioned, is an option. Um, encryption, I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of different methods. I think the problem with a lot of large corporates is um, we all don't fully understand where all our data is actually stored. And I think that is the bigger risk than um, actually protecting the data once we know where it is. Because um, there's enough technologies, there's enough methods, there's enough um, ways to provide that segregation and protection. A problem with our business and, and the way we interoperate, um, just understanding and keeping and containing that data is extremely difficult. And I'm assuming a, a large corporate like British Airways is sitting with that exact challenge. Because so probably on the server that no one even knew that it's supposed to hold the data. Remember, just a follow-up question of, of one of the earlier questions. I've spoken to a number of CIOs over the years, and, and some are sort of dead against cloud computing or cloud-based um, sort of information. Others are obviously quite for it because obviously you know there's risk, so that you've got lots of mitigation strategies in place for that. So I just wanted to really get the view on that, and is it only certain data you'd put up? So obviously, as Arthur said, you wouldn't put the CCV numbers in the cloud altogether uh, by way of an example, or do you maybe just keep policyholders' data uh, secure uh, on site with your disaster recovery, uh, or would you put it up in the cloud? Uh, this is the one. Is the one the one comment, and and maybe uh, you want to that, then I'll ask my next question on cryptocurrencies. 
So, going to the cloud, you've got to do a certain level of homework, right? It's not about you just saying tomorrow you're going to up and ship the entire client database into the cloud. Again, I'm saying you've got to be accountable for what you're shifting there. Remember, in the past, it was about following the money, right? Breaking into a bank, bombing an ATM, and that got a bit dicey because you lost a few limbs. Right? <laughs> Today you follow the data, right? We describe the data as the crown jewels. So the higher the sensitivity of the data, the more protection you would need. So to, earlier I was saying about, one, you've got to get the basics right. Hmm? Being perfect at a few things. So if you can't get to classify your data internally, or like Zeddy is saying, where your data is, especially if it's personal, if it's sensitive, and remember, Poppy talks about personal, sensitive, and confidential, because your health records has more value to it. What then then warrants is to have a higher degree of contractual agreements with this service provider. You, we're not um, prescribing what you should and what you shouldn't, but remember, um, as the regulator, or as our regulator, uh, is talking about, so now they've issued us a cloud guideline in terms of when we do do this, initially they were very anti-cloud. So now they're saying, when we do do this, these are the requirements that you need to have in play. Right? So it's nothing different from what all the other pieces of reg is asking you, because at the end of the day, it boils down to trust, and it boils down to how do you take reasonable measures to protect your data that you've entrusted me with. So CBB, um, we... We, we're even going as far as in the call recording, you need to blank that out because what that is saying is that if you store that level of information, you need to have that level of protection. So again, what we are saying back to the organization is, um, one, identify where your crown jewels are, and if it's going into the cloud, one, the first thing that you need to do is have that contractual obligation. Because when the stuff hits the fan, you can't be doing this, right? You're accountable. You've got to respond to your shareholders, the regulator, your customers in particular, and the media is going to have a frenzy. You know that. Thanks. Uh, maybe just a follow-up question or comment on your ATM uh, sort of bombing. I think what we've seen a lot with the cryptocurrencies, the guys are much more. There was, I think, that big hack with NiceHash last year, 65 million uh, or billion dollars, I can't remember. I think recently there was a Japanese company as well, which lost a whole lot of uh, sort of Bitcoin and, and stuff like that. I know at the last actual convention, there's a lot of talk about forward thinking. Can we pay claims, for example, with cryptocurrency? Uh, look, I think it's probably still a couple of years off, but I think given all these uh, sort of uh, hacks or, or, or um, into uh, crypto uh, currencies, I just wanted to get your view as to is it uh, is it likely to to happen, and, and just your views on on sort of the cryptocurrency and all the, the risks around that? Sure. And this is my personal view I'll share with you. I love it. Because for us, it takes away a lot of the um, uncertainty and the fear and the doubt factor. The, the challenge that we're having is that it is unregulated. 
right? So now, how do you play in cyberspace? Uh, you don't see your um, counterpart or your, uh, your strategic uh, partner on the other side or paying out a claim without doing the basic ID and V. And even if you do do that, how do you then ensure authenticity, integrity is still maintained? So here's what we're having. So now you talk about you're moving into a digital, into an innovative uh, space, um, and you're trying to apply um, the new way of thinking. <coughs> At the end of the day, you're trying to service a customer on the other side, and the customer is wanting to be uh, portable, mobile, um, and online. How do you pay out a claim in a few seconds, but still having the risk factor consideration? So one, I'm all for it. Then we're going to introduce blockchain to it, because that, in my mind, would help us to do the innovation better without losing um, truckloads of money. The regulator needs to come into the room and allow that to happen in a way that is not governed, but it has a few basic rule sets. Um, there, was a, there was an article I read recently um, by one of the consulting companies that predicted that the next big financial crisis will be triggered by a, a cyber event. And I think it just reflects you know, this trend towards increasing systemic risk. Um, kind of feels as if we're all on this train that you know you just you can't slow it down, but we, we're getting to a point where just the risk keeps growing. And because of the greater independence and you know when, when something could happen that is in very big and it's difficult to know quite, quite how to respond to that because you, you can't really stay out of it. Um, you know, and one doesn't really know with something like cloud computing, just does this create kind of a global risk? And this, this article, was not, it wasn't a South African article, it was talking about a global event where you could have a crisis that just, it triggers a, you know, a massive crash in financial markets. Um, so it's maybe a bit of an unfair question to ask any of you, but just is there, I mean, how do you see that? What can we do, either collectively or individually, to try and just mitigate that increasing systemic risk that seems to be developing? So, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's then, uh, I think even at the World Economic Forum on, on the big dashboard, cybercrime and uh, cyber threats is literally up there, um, even higher than natural disasters. Um, and I think 2021, it was 31, the estimation is $31 trillion um, that cybercrime would cost across the world. Um, my answer to that question is how do we, you know, it's this big cloud over our heads and how do we actually open an umbrella even. Um, my answer to that is stick to the basics. There's foundational security controls that we tend to forget about looking at this next big attack or this next big threat factor. I think if we maintain uh, basic foundational security controls, 90% of our problem is actually sorted. Um, because the preventative controls are the uh, basic awareness. Um, we know the people that. Um, if we just keep to that, um, it allows our security professionals then to concentrate on that 10% uh, delta. Um, but I think a lot of us um, actually start looking, okay, but now here's a new vector, here's a new zero-day malware. Um, what do we do about this? And our the security technology vendors are literally coming out every day with new, the next best thing. 
AI, I mean machine learning, everything is new and that is confusing our CEOs and CIOs about what security actually is because now we, we spend a lot of money on the latest, next best thing, but we forget about basic controls. And, and that, that's literally what the attackers are using to uh, penetrate and, and compromise our environments. Not using the, the latest and greatest uh, attack pass of vectors is literally breaching known vulnerabilities from 2010 even. Mm. So I'll just add to what I was saying. Um, I think, you know, as security practitioners, we've all known for a while that um, basic hygiene is where, where the real issue is. I mean, most of the breaches, you know, he's spoken about, you know, how foundational things, the weak foundation is, is, um, is what's infiltrated to get into an organization. I think for me, it's, it's, it's making sure you have visibility over your estate. So for me, creating that visibility just removes a little bit of doubt. Um, so creating that visibility across your entire estate, knowing where all the moving parts are and what everything looks like is really, really important. And being able to centralize a response, because it's once again, it's not if, it's when. You're going to get breached. It's how you contain that breach. It's how quickly you can react to make sure it's three devices and not 30,000 devices. It's, it's, it's about containment because it's a lot better story to go out to the industry to say, we had a breach, it was ring fenced to this, we, were, we acted quickly, we were able to detect it within X amount of time, we were able to respond to it within X amount of time, and actually this is what the potential would have been and this is what we were ring fenced it to. So it's about being able to have a good, strong base of hygiene and then investing in selective technology. Because I also said there's a lot of noise in the system, and I completely agree with that. Everyone out there is willing to sell you, you know, an arm and a leg and a dog and a cat. Um, it's, it's about really handpicking that few <coughs> great technologies out there and then investing in those areas that are giving you that maximum visibility and maximum ability to be able to quickly affect change in your environment. And I think that's the only hope any of us have. Mm. I like it, Chris. I want to I wanna color in more. So I'm not sure where, where, where you are in the day, but you've either been compromised and you don't know it, or the villains are in your environment and they're busy doing reconnaissance on your environment. So the fourth industrial revolution in my mind has happened, guys. Call me paranoid. That's where I lost my hair. I see when the political and the social and the economic um, attributes take a dip, I see the crime is up. So, and I see it, whether it's on the WhatsApp group um, that, that the security guys are posting, or I see it online and digital. And it has a direct attribute, so I, I'll go back to the breach. Um, is that on Monday, because I can't remember the number, but I saw that the share price was down. So we're always trying to look for data points. We always look at the rest of the world for data points around, if a breach happens, how much is this going to cost you? This has a direct impact on your headline earning. A cyber breach is material in that way. Why? In my mind, it talks to a trust factor. Your customer is not going to do online banking with you if you just got hacked, right? How do you bring that trust back into the room? And like Chris is saying, you got, and Zadie is saying the same thing, you got 
to recruit the people because you cannot be unaware of this. They need to have a level of understanding, awareness. And I'll talk a little bit more about how do we disrupt ourselves doing different levels of awareness to different communities. And the last thing is about the resilience. So when you do get breached, what is your response? Because you can't call 911 or the SPCA. They both are not going to be available, right? You've got to have a certain level of response and uh, reaction. Not that we have a team waiting on the side for when a breach happens. They do this every day. So either in simulations that they are practicing to respond to a cyber attack, or we in real life uh, crisis mode, and this is how we're going to react when you are compromised. Because there's no time for handbook. There is no handbook. It's about how do we as a collective collaborate to respond and to get the business as usual going. Any other questions from the floor? Yeah, maybe I can ask one. In terms of the initiatives that you've put out into your business, what, what has been the most creative or unusual thing that you've done to create or increase awareness in the business? Because this isn't an IT issue only, it's also a big people, mm. people issue. Yeah. So maybe I'll start, Julie. So I think um, we've leveraged a hell of a lot on um, the power of conversation. So I think we've created almost, um, what we've managed to achieve in All Mutual is almost this, this, I want to call it a cult, but it sounds wrong because cult has a negative connotation, but we have a cult following, following for information security. It's on the border agenda, it's on every exco agenda, it's if you walk the corridors, you hear it spoken. So we've created a conversation around information security, which I think has been hugely meaningful. And it was it was not really via any, you know, huge campaign or uh, huge, you know, marketing stint. It was really about being in the face of business and consistently passing on the same message. We need to do this. We need to move in this trajectory. And yes, it was difficult in the beginning. But if I look at where we've come from a year ago versus now, it's becoming more tangible. And we can start seeing the fruits of that labor because we've kept with that same, you know, having a trajectory and following that trajectory wholeheartedly. Because organizations are very quick to, I don't see results in three months, therefore I'm switching strategies. I'm switching approaches. And if you keep to that strategy and keep to that approach, the benefit in the long run, instead of switching 20 times over in the space of a year, is hugely beneficial. And you get almost this cult following because you get the traction by doing that. You get the buy-in by doing that. You get the commitment by doing that. Because success breeds success. And people see success and they want to be part of that success. And so it's easier to infiltrate different parts of the business that you weren't able to infiltrate before. Um, it's, it's easier to influence different parts of the business that you weren't able to influence before. And I think the other thing that has been hugely impactful in Old Mutual is being pragmatic about how we do things. And I used an example the other day as well, also at the ORM conference, which was risk management on a post-it. And, and it's really difficult to think about this because in the new ways of working, where we have people developing everywhere and user stories, for me personally, I had to take a step back and go, actually, how do I do this? I can't do risk management on a post-it. And that's actually what we're doing now. We're doing risk management on a post-it. We're writing security stories on a post-it that goes onto a board 
that then gets prioritized and scheduled into, into a, a batch of work. It's about accommodating what business wants to do and then empowering them to do that so that you, get, you, you keep that buy-in, you keep building that buy-in, and they keep asking for more. And I think that's, the, that's, that's the, the, probably one of the biggest successes that we've had. Mm, I'll hold on that. This is my favorite topic, guys. This is where uh, I ask for forgiveness. And at one point, we had body-painted people in the building. And when you walk past them, they were barely visible until they like grabbed you or the females were complaining there wasn't much male body-painted males in the building. <laughs> but this is what happened. So on on, on, on uh, a particular campaign for privacy, security, and cyber, this is where you need to get creative, right? Innovative. This is where I think we took it to the next level, where we had people uh, delivering a message without even saying anything. They were hidden and looked like a work of art, but it had a very particular message because we talked about, you know, when we collect your, um, your bank account information, it's left on the printer, but we have that obligation to, to protect it, right? Then we uh, went further and uh, partnered with uh, Secure Tunes. So this is using cartoons in a corporate environment, in an adult world. I still love cartoons, I don't know about you guys where the cartoons tell you a story about cyber, about security, about sharing passwords, not your lunch kind of thing. Um, and then at induction, what we do at induction, uh, we fish people, the newbies, we fish them, right? Uh, we social engineer them. So we try to also demonstrate these technical jargon in very pragmatic ways. Um, I talk about a network while you guys may conjure up IT in your minds, as CISO, my network are my people. From the front desk to the CE's office, by now I think they know me, not because of my looks, it's because of one year, the bridge. And secondly, it's that we are deliberate about getting them into a room, whether you are a developer or coder, giving you very, um, very technical way of how to do cybersecurity, or if you're just an end user, we make it very fun uh, for you. Because back at the, at the strategy, we talk about being agile and not fragile. So even the board today, when I get in there, um, they already looking forward to my presentation. Uh, they're kind of getting it. I'm sure they're getting it because, because I can now see them not frowning anymore. They're smiling about, they understand what we're talking about. So the awareness for me is key. Um, the education is another component where we have formal platforms, so we've got to tick the compliance box. So we'll do a little video, we'll ask you a few questions, and that serves as my attestation that this guy has an inclination of what the policy said because he's familiar with the jargon in there. Yeah, so I think the same. I mean, it's it's getting that awareness out there and getting it into a, or putting it into a manner that talks to the individuals in the different generation gaps. Um, I mean, the, the cartoon thing, we, we do that. We do the induction thing as well. Uh, we do the, the fun fishing. 
campaigns constantly test. I mean, the, the common attack vectors that the criminals normally use, we test our staff against it <laughs> after every uh, sort of awareness campaign we run. And then we also never waste a good crisis. So <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, the, the posters and, and, and screen um, backgrounds after the fateful day was, let's not be liberty. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it's also playing on the media. I mean, the British Airways thing as well. Um, it's, it's getting the people familiar, and then we've taken it a step further to the people's, uh, to our staff's individual lives. How does it impact them at home? Mm. How does it impact their children? Mm. Um, how, how do they start securing their own personal lives? And I think with that, and also teaching their, their, their kids coming up. I mean, I know my little ones, they know uh, literally, uh, I don't want to say the story, but my son, when he was 12 years old, was already social engineering and uh, hacking our neighbor's Wi-Fi password. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's teaching them uh, online um, responsibilities as well. And I think that had a bigger impact on our staff because once they start realizing how they personally could be affected by a breach, um, it says, okay, now how do we protect our customers? Mm -hmm. Again, staff are also customers of our organization, so how do we start taking ownership of that, that, that data and actually protecting us across the board? Mm -hmm. I think maybe I can make a quick comment about some of our mutual phishing campaigns as well. I mean, I think that they were expertly designed to to kind of get to every human frailty that they want. So they were just everyday things that people just naturally fall into, you know. If it's about, we're about to, if you if you don't sign this policy, we're going to, you know, there's a new leave arrangement coming in and you need to read it and accept it. The moment people hear anything about annual leave, they're clicking like mad and doing whatever. So they could just make people aware that actually, you know, it's very easy to to get hooked into to exposing yourself or your, your, <coughs> your organisation. Mm -hmm. I think that those were, kind of gave a very broad-based awareness right through all levels of the organisation. You know, where some of the other conversations happened at different mm -hmm. levels of seniority in the organisation. That was very well done. Could I just make two, one comment, one question? Uh, firstly, do you use uh, outside is to try and hack in other professional hackers to actually test your system. The second one is we had a fraud at work and it turned out the fraudster was an insider. I'm sure you must be subject to that as well. That somebody inside your, your policeman who is quite senior is actually part of a syndicate. So how do you, how do you actually protect against that? So I'll take, I'll take a stab at that. So yes we do. Um, they're called ethical hackers. Um, if there is such a thing, but, but they're, they're largely a group of highly skilled people that companies hire to actually expose vulnerabilities in their systems. So they will behave like an attacker would, look at your system like an attacker would. Um, all big organizations use them. Um, um, in a nutshell, they, they tell you about vulnerabilities and weaknesses that you wouldn't have picked up normally, and then you have an opportunity to fix it, hopefully, before somebody else finds it. Um, the, there's a spin-off of that because I'm sure all of us sitting here have probably had um, strange calls from people going, I found something and give me a job. Um, there's a couple of stories of those as well. So there's some not so ethical hackers out there as well. Um, and then the second part of your question about um, 
Um, sorry, can you just repeat the second part? Inside a threat. Inside a threat. Um, so I've actually got, actually got a good example. Um, it's not at all mutual. Um, it's at a previous organization that I worked at. Um, there was a, a developer who had written a system um, that, that processed a payment um, and he was running his own syndicate to resell to the public. So this was a re it, they were selling a product. Um, he had created an avenue for himself to generate this product and to be able to have people walk the streets and sell the product on his behalf. Um, and you know, there's, 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 there's tips and tricks as to how you pick this up. So with this specific case, um, the person was coming into work um, at 3 a.m. in the morning. Okay, so he was working outside of the normal working hours. Um, he was, he was, there were changes to the system that were not necessarily scheduled and were picked up as strange by management. Um, and then on the tail end of that, when you have detective controls that tell you that actually, you know, we generated X amount, but actually the value that we recovered was Y amount, and it doesn't add up. You need all of those controls together to be able to detect that inside of threat. So it's, it's human behavior, and that there's no control that you're going to get that's going to be perfect. It's my colleague actually used to only work from 9 to 5, and now he's in the office at 3 a.m., and that's, you know, corridor talk. And then there's, um, there's, there's detective controls that you put in to say, has a fraud occurred? And all of that coming together helps you to, to identify inside a threat. In this specific example, it was quite a huge syndicate that it set up. Um, so at that time, it was the, the, I can't remember if it was the Hawks or the Scorpions back then. Um, but they were involved, you know, police cars, flashing lights and everything. His line manager wasn't even aware that he was being investigated. All he'd known was about the symptoms that were being fed into the, the forensics department that was investigating. Um, and it ended up going to, to, to court. The tail end of that is um, back then, which was probably about you know, seven to eight years ago, uh, the judicial system wasn't set up to manage something like this. So you get into court to log the docket was got lost twice because the police officer didn't actually know what to log it under. And then when it eventually did get logged, um, the legal counsel couldn't understand how the fraud actually happened because it happened in the system, it was technical. There was a whole complexity around that. And it was the first time that that organization was going through that. So as an information security team, it was, very, it was a very complex situation to navigate. Things have gotten better since then. But it's not smooth sailing either. So we've got an issue with detecting inside a threat, but also then, you know, you know, taking those people to to case and actually proving that it's happened. So it's not a it's not a simple answer, I guess. It's a it's a whole lot of things that have to play together to, to give you that view. I want to add to you quickly that then hear what you want to say. So we have an obligation, a regulatory obligation, to have an independent ethical hack on the organization on a yearly basis. What we do then internally, we have our own ethical hackers. We call them the red and blue team. So they will look for these uh, vulnerabilities, we'll play out simulations, and we'll do it on an ongoing basis. In the new ways of working, we we're trying to incorporate the, this testing as part of the way of working. So they don't think about security as an afterthought. So year one, we do bring in the, the the heavy cyber artillery when we have to, but it's just a part of the strategy. And then the insider threat, we figured that 
this is what Zaid is talking about, about getting the basics right. Because, and, and, and while you're waiting for the new cyber threat to happen from the outside, the internal villains, don't, be, don't get me wrong, we're not saying that everyone's a baddie on the inside, but what the um, villain will do is social engineer or he or she would um, recruit somebody on the inside. And you know, the contact center, coke means something different to them, it's white and it's powdery, right? They're young and they fought because they're living differently. Those are the people that they will target on the inside because all they want is credentials. All they want is access. So whether it's logical or into the building, the insider will be um, solicited to make the uh, fraud happen. We see this, and the most, the best detective or the preventative action is the people. We normally get people telling us this is happening before a piece of technology is going to detect the fraud has already happened because it's too late. Sorry, just a comment. Um, when we see risk appetites, we would see that cyber risk is obviously inherently a high risk. But because of this magnitude, and can we really understand it and really see the next thing happening? Can we really get to a point where cyber risk after mitigation action becomes a small residual risk? Or will your inherent risk and your residual risk on cyber always be kind of the same? Because there is mitigation, but it's always evolve, evolving and there's always the next big thing that it's, it, you kind of get paranoid. Can you really mitigate this thing? I think it is possible, right? Uh, I think the, the challenge again is that understanding. I mean, as uh, I, I know I constantly speak to my risk managers and not just the IT risk managers. I think all our risk managers needs to be IT savvy in today's time and understand what that risk actually is because we keep getting the residual inherent and where does this sit on um, in terms of our appetite? I think it's an understanding that we need to come together as security professionals and risk professionals to understand as a business now, have we contained uh, or have we mitigated or remediated what we need to in terms of our risk and then actually quantify or qualify what that residual actually is. And I think that's where we battle as a business because I know, I mean, uh, I constantly have um, long debates with our CRO is, uh, yeah, but yes, it's a risk. And I mean, data loss, I'm sure it's red on every single, or black, it's not even a red risk anymore, it's a black risk now, uh, on every one of the risks. But guys, let's understand where and what data. Uh, I mean, if someone, if my name just gets leaked, how big is that risk? It's already out there. My, our ID numbers, master these guys, our ID numbers are out there already. Um, so, so where's this risk now? Let's, let's try and contain it and, and actually assess it properly first before just making it red. Because what we do then is shift the focus um, of your, our security and IT staff in the wrong place. Because uh, then we, we try and protect um, or try and do things to protect that when we've actually got bigger holes in our, uh, in our yard than we actually think about. So I think it's interesting because um if you, look at the, if you look at the regulatory landscape, um, just from that perspective and what's coming in, inherently our risk is increasing. Um, if you look at the volume of, of uh, breaches, if you look at what we're doing with technology today versus what we did with technology 20 years ago, that inherent risk is at a constant upward uh, trajectory. Um, 
But I think on the flip side, the controls that we have today are also better than what we had 20 years ago. Um, so AI, um, automation, a lot of those things didn't exist 10 years ago. Um, so I do agree with that. I think there is a balance, and I think it's about finding that balance. Mm. I don't think it happens overnight. Um, you know, it's not going to be a quick fix. It's not going to be your inheritance risk is high and I do three things and my, my residual risk is low. It's not going to be that. Um, you know, there's a process to get there, uh, but it is achievable, I think, um, over a period of time and over, you know, concerted effort and a lot of rigor. But this is where I'm seeing that you can help us. So it goes back to the risk appetite of the organization, right? And this freaks me out. You have like a matrix and like sometimes I just want to call on Stevie Wonder to help me plot that matrix and put in place where your residual or your appetite is because this is what we're doing. We sometimes just flying blind. We don't know what we don't know yet. Um, we talk about um, what will it cost you to be compliant versus non-compliant? Because some of the places that I've been, uh, the CE wants to know how much must he have in reserves to pay a poppy fine, as opposed to trying to be compliant. So productivity versus compliance. Yeah. So I think we've got to be deliberate about one: uh, where's the appetite? What's reasonableness and what are we protecting at the end of the day? For me, it goes back to you as the customer and instilling that trust. It's not about taking a compliance box. Yeah, I think it's working. Okay. I think that we're pretty much at the end of time. So if anybody hasn't, if there are no more questions that I can see, are you going to try and give your video yeah. a bash? Yeah. So I think we'll end up with a quick two-minute video and then say thank you to our panel. So let me set the scene. This is a video clip I use at uh, induction. So it's about um, now trying to be delivered about the PR uncertainty and doubt, leaving these guys with a message that welcome to liberty. You've got to now understand the rules play by the rules. So here's a choice. You've got a plan A and a plan B. You can choose. And I give them a few options. Thanks very much for, for kind of sharing your war wounds with us and your ideas about the future and how we can keep our organization safe. That's really helpful. I've got a small gift for you from the Actuarial Society. So. That, that pretty much brings to an end the proceedings from the day. So I hope that you've um, found the information that was shared with you useful, challenging, um, and that you've got something to take away. Please look out in your emails for a survey where you can give feedback on the sort of um, content and the proceedings of the, of the seminar so that we can take your input into account to next year's event. And otherwise, thank you for being here. Safe travels home. Yes.